You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. And welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Kreppy, and he is Aaron Fentress. And as you might imagine, we will be going over extensively uh, Oregon's win over Washington. A very early look at Oregon's matchup with Washington State this upcoming weekend. Another Pac-12 After Dark special uh, Saturday night at Austin Stadium. And we'll get into a little bit in and around all the game, the antics, the postgame, all the, all the fun stuff. And yeah, we'll mention the playoff a little bit in passing, but... Given that this is just going to be a uh, weekly occurrence as long as Oregon keeps winning, uh, neither one of us really intend to, uh, uh, well, neither one of us are going to have our blood pressure go up very high one way or the other, but we're not really going to pantomime and uh, pretend to be the talking heads uh, who are subsidized entirely by the existence of these rankings on a weekly basis. Speak for yourself. I have a gripe. No, I'm just kidding. Well, yeah. I, I, <laughs> we talked about it last week because it came out last week. It was the first one. It's a barometer. But other than that, the week-to-week impact. Talk to me in a month. Anywho, <laughs> to the game itself. Your impressions from the 26-16 win for Oregon over Washington. Uh, good teams win, great teams cover. And it was, weather-wise, pretty miserable. Uh, pretty much from start to almost all the way to the finish. It finally stopped at least pouring buckets uh, in the final about eight ten minutes, yeah, it kind of went how I thought it might. You know, Washington wouldn't be able to score enough points to even pull off an upset because the Ducks would get into the twenties, which they did. Of course, you know, turnovers can change all that, which was my sort of big thing. Don't allow Washington to force turnovers <clears throat> and change the complexion of the game. But it was it was funny because well early there was a pick which obviously Brown didn't see the backer and the backer picks it off sets up a touchdown. But uh, obviously. Obviously. You don't think it was obvious they didn't see him? Uh, I think he stared down his receiver to where it really didn't matter if there was a defense. It, it, was the, it looked the same way as the interception against Stanford. Okay. The defender didn't move. He didn't do anything exotic. He was standing there the whole time. He just was intent on throwing to the receiver. And I'm not, not going to have, you know, every which other thing about Anthony Brown on the day. I thought he actually managed the game quite well after that. And I thought his bad start passing uh, from a statistical standpoint, accuracy standpoint, um, just pure by the box score. Some of the throwaways and things that he did early, th- there was just nowhere to go with the ball. Uh, it, was just, it just was what it was. I mean, they, they found themselves in some kind of messed up situations early, particularly backed up a couple of times with punts and stuff. But be that as it may, I, I, I can't say he obviously missed the linebacker. I think he was just so intent on throwing to Pittman on that that it really didn't matter who was in the way. And it, was, it was a bad play. It was a bad throw. Well, 
yes, of course it was a bad play. It was a bad throw. If you're not reading the defense and not seeing everybody, then yeah. But if you're staring down a receiver, that means you're not looking for anyone else. So it's, they kind of like coincide. But I don't believe he saw – I don't believe the backer was in his, his uh, line of view. I think he was hidden behind the line. But regardless, that doesn't matter. The point is that set up points for them. And then UW had a good field position for most of the game, but they couldn't capitalize because their offense was just garbage. So – it went pretty much how I figured it would. I didn't think Oregon would score a ton of points because Washington does have a pretty solid defense. They're not very good against the run, but they don't give up a ton of points. And Oregon doesn't have a quarterback who's consistent enough to take advantage of the running game compliments, which he was not. He regressed certainly in this game, but he regressed against a really good passing defense. So maybe this is just a sign that, hey, give him a good defense. He's still going to struggle. Give him a weak defense. He might be able to flourish, which is still an upgrade from where he was early in the season because he faced some bad defenses and still struggled. But the game went pretty much chalk to me. Oregon got the win. Good for them. As uh, as a whole, to to me in the big picture, offensively, obviously Travis Dye has just an incredible performance. We'll get into that here a little bit more in a moment. Brown, I thought on the on the entire body of work, yes, the first half was a rocky start without without question. I mean, it absolutely was downright brutal at times, um, because in terms of statistically. But they were backed up, again, by great punts initially from Washington. The starting field position was really, really brutal for Oregon's offense. But on the interception, that's just a flat-out bad play. Like I said, I don't make an exception there. That's just – it is what it is. It was a very, very, very bad decision and everything else. However, there were plays where he had either nowhere to go with the ball. There was no other option. I mean, the check down to Devin Williams was an example. He had nowhere to go with that ball. He had to get rid of it, and it just happened that – Devin had to be standing right there, but he had nowhere else that he could go with that. Um, that, that, that was just a, a doomed play by the way it was. Uh, he can't catch the ball for Spencer Webb. You know, there's a drop there that just is what it is. Uh, it just, it is what it is, you know. And look, part of it, and to be fair to the receivers too, with some of these issues came up early. Again, it was raining buckets. It was raining sideways. The wind was brutal. It was 40 some odd degrees. I'm sure it didn't feel terribly good uh, to be down on the field throughout the course of that game. So I don't mind in terms of the general statistic of it and saying, I, I don't think this is a matter of regression so much as I think this is just playing in terrible conditions compounded by a very good defense and a pass defense that is. And he made the one big play that mattered which was the 31-yard touchdown to Devin Williams. What was that safety doing? Safety's driving me nuts. Go well, ahead. Hey, yeah. That you have one job when you're in the middle of the field deep. You have one job. How hard is it? And the thing is, is traditionally they don't get beat over the top at all. And, you know, now, again, it, it, it's quasi – it's over the top in that Williams to get behind the defense, but not because it ends in the end zone. It's not, you know, the ability to keep on going. But be that as it may, only the third 30-yard pass allowed by Washington all season. So, you know, that counted for something. It was on a naked boot and everything. So it was, that was a really nice play. I thought Brown also made some nice plays with his feet. Uh, a couple of where he had to scramble, where he turned he turned less than nothing. He turned losses into gains. So on the entirety of the night, I thought Anthony Brown actually played okay to borderline well from a, this overall decision-making. Yes, again, the interception, no question about it. But again, not every... Uh, incompletion to start the game, and I think he started two of nine, or uh, yeah, two of nine. I think three of eleven. Uh, not everything out the shoot was all on him. It just wasn't. Uh, it just wasn't. It 
and that goes for the rest of the offense too. I think the offense as a whole, passing game, running game, everything, offensive line even, was a little bit out of sync throughout the entirety of the first quarter into the second quarter. Uh, but then obviously things began to turn from there. They found rhythm. They hit the big touchdown. And then forget it, in the second half, they stuck to it. So I think that was part of it. Defensively, tremendous performance. Tremendous performance. Um, tremendous? Yes. Yes. Tremendous performance because... I guess one of the as, worst offenses in the country? Yeah, but you're supposed to make them... Look, you're not supposed to make them look good. Um, why I say tremendous? Because it's under 200 yards. I mean, there's bad and there's bad. Uh, and that's the difference. It's tremendous because up against the two and three tight end sets that I've talked about for two solid months where the absolute Achilles heel for this defense... Yeah, they got hit on a, one or two of them for decent gains, not you know twenty plus yard runs or something, but solid enough. But on the whole, on the whole, they countered with personnel, and they had tried this kind of five two look before, but they didn't have all the bodies that they had available before. You know, this past weekend and even the weekend before, they didn't, and they didn't have to go to the five two before uh, as much with Colorado. Here, they did it. They set the edges right. The interior did a great job with it. And to me, why I call it tremendous, because they got contributions, <clears throat> not just, yes, Noah Sewell has 10 tackles, and he's virtually always going to end up leading this team in tackles because of the role that he plays at inside backer. Kayvon Thibodeau did things that went far beyond the box score on the edges. The interior defensive linemen, including Christian Williams and Jason Jones, neither of whom even record a statistic, make extremely important plugging of holes, extremely important to where they blew up plays. And to have two major contributors and Jeff Bassa and Jordan Happel, who one is moving over from nickel to inside backer, as we've obviously it's been basically two months now, but a true freshman doing that, coming through in a rivalry game in that setting, in that moment, up against a team, again, with the multi-tight ends looks, comes up with a fourth and one stop, Big plays from him, more than just that, too. Big plays from Bassa in a big way. And Happel, club hand and all, after missing the week before, getting injured before halftime at the UCLA game at the right hand. The interception was one thing. Now, you want to talk about bad throws. Brown stared down a receiver. Morris was dead set on throwing to the receiver into triple coverage and didn't seem to mind that it was triple coverage at all. Oh, that was crazy. That was absolutely inexplicable I mean, there's there's no words i mean there's it's just inexplicable that, that he was that gonna just, squeeze it in there man you could have squeeze it in there i i honestly thought when he threw it i'm going like <laughs> surely that's gonna end up out of bat no it's not gonna end up out of bounds that's gonna end up in jordan happel's one hand and a club uh that he saw, he it saw was just unbelievable saw. but why i say tremendous is because it's under 200 yards it's fitting all it, it's correcting so many of the things that this defense has been plagued by by way of having issues. Uh, it's six three-and-outs, a turnover, a fourth-down stop, and a safety. That's tremendous. Yes, against a terrible offense who fired its coordinator, which when I said when I said it should have been done after the season opener. So <laughs> not like I'm sitting here, and, and I did. I, mean, I said that night, I said, no hyperbole, no joke. How do you survive that kind of performance? And here we are. So point is, is hey, yeah, but you, you're not supposed to make a terrible offense look good. They they made a terrible offense look terrible. Here's Because here's the thing. You could say, did basically, did the Oregon defense make the Washington offense look terrible? Or did the Washington offense 
make itself look terrible by all those sorts of, you know, self-inflicted errors and all those things. Yeah, a couple of pre-snap penalties. Both teams had that. But Dylan Morris made his own awful decision on an interception. Outside of that, some of it was play calling on the screens where they went. I mean, they're just going left to right. They're not actually gaining yards. McGrew, McGrew, I thought, played okay. I'm not going to tell you he played well. I'm going to tell you he played great. But he played okay. He had a couple of runs where, look, he, he slipped and evaded a couple of tacklers a couple of times. He also got brought down for losses. He also got stopped for no gains. And that's on the defense. So as a whole, and again, Thibodeau blown off the edges against Jackson Kirkland, one of the better linemen in the league. That's why I call it tremendous. Because it's not just, oh, they're awful, they didn't allow a lot of points and it was raining. It's all of these factors and getting contributions from players who aren't just the top two or three superstars on the defense. It was an across-the-board thing. That's why I call it tremendous. So that, to me, was some of the big-picture stuff. But we'll drill into a couple of them a little bit more here, starting on the offense, Aaron. And, again, to me, Die and the offensive line in particular were certainly the, the carrying forces for the offense in this game. They needed to be. They were. What did you think of this this running back who is – very quickly becoming a major, not just, he was always a contributor throughout his entire career. Now with the opportunity to be the number one back, that kind of performance is, that was, like I said, tremendous before. I'll just say that was incredible. 200 plus rushing yards. It was, it was was a great career day. I think that's, that goes without saying. Yeah, he was, he was special. He did it and he did it. In every way imaginable, up the middle, short gains, tough yards. He, he obviously broke free for some nice long ones as well. Um, he's he's a versatile guy, and he's he's showing so far that he can handle the extra load. He can handle the extra burden and the carries, and his body is holding up just fine, as far as we can all tell. And they did against you know, I mean, Washington's run defense. They're, they're a little the run defense is horrible, actually. Yeah, I was going to say suspect, but no, not very bad. good. They're really bad. Not very good. And so smart of Oregon to, to attack that and go after it. But yeah, no, he looked again. He's he's demonstrated that there's life without C.J. Verdell, and we're starting to see some of the younger backs get in there and, and contribute as well. So no, obviously a great performance by him. Another one, and now he has one year left, right, because of the COVID. Yeah. Situation. Yeah. Yeah. So he could he could return next year and, and be and maybe have a, a, a full on huge on the guy type season. We'll see if he returns. I imagine he would. But no, it was it was definitely an all around performance by Dye for sure. Yeah, and that was one of the one of the things that uh hit the cutting room floor uh on my story on Travis at the end of the week, uh heading into this game uh just of, of really who Travis Dye is, uh because he was so defined throughout his career, throughout his life really by his relation to others of being the youngest of five boys, the fifth of six siblings and being the number two rusher at his high school behind Toby Gerhardt uh, in terms of the record books. And, and Gerhardt has the California state high school career record, obviously Troy's brother at Oregon and being the number two option to CJ throughout four years and getting into with Travis and those around him with his dad, with his uh, girlfriend of six years of just who is he? How has he been able to share the spotlight the way he has? And if he didn't have brothers, would he be able to? Uh, really some introspective stuff. But one of the things that hit the cutting room floor there was talking about future a little bit mm-hmm. and getting some insight from folks about that 
yeah, there is. It, it, it's not just that. Oh well, we haven't made a decision yet, and it's just kind of no. There really hasn't. Uh, there, there really hasn't been at all. Uh, and I'm not sure what impact the rest of the season will have one way or the other in that regard, because I don't think this is a matter of production. I don't think it's a matter of trying to prove something additional to NFL scouts this season. The things that are going to be questioned uh, in that regard, but the next level for Travis are size related. And he can prove durability to get through the rest of the season without any issue. Certainly, but he's not going to suddenly add 10 or 15 pounds in the next month or two. And that you know, nobody does that during the season. If anything, you lose weight. So point is, is I'm not sure that the rest of the season is necessarily going to, I, I don't know how, how big a factor that's going to be in the decision-making process in the grand scheme of things. Um, but like I say, that ended up being just something that it didn't totally fit into the story entirely because it really was just about the now. Um, right. But be that as it may, it was just something that hit the cutting room floor. But uh, again, yeah, I thought he did it. He had a career night, uh, a, a career-defining night. Uh, he has had several terrific performances already over the last four or five games since Verdell went down, but that obviously tops all of them. Uh, they now tops his giant performance as a true freshman against Oregon State, but you want to talk about bad defenses. Oh, my goodness. But it just further it just underscores – how how he has risen to the occasion uh, and done just, a, again, a terrific job here the last month across the board, pass blocking, receiving, and he had a couple of receptions in this game, but ultimately to run 28 times. If you would have told people before the season that Dye would have had a game with 28 carries for 211 and, say, pick the opponent that it was done against, nobody would have said Washington. Everybody would have guessed something like Arizona or Stony Brook or Colorado or something. Right. For it to be this game and the rivalry, and and because, again, the offense needed it, and given the fact that, yes, it is the weather. And the other component to it is bad defense, bad run defense or not, just like we're talking about like bad Washington offense. Well, bad Washington run defense or not, and they're bad. This was the fifth 200-yard performance of the season, second 300-yard performance of the season against them, when it took 11 years for the prior two 300-yard performances. <laughs> against Washington's defense. So, yes, they have regressed in a very bad way against the run. But the other team's allowed to try, and the other team's allowed to load the box. And when it was obvious that Oregon was only going to be running the ball, they continued to do so relentlessly. And, yes, it started with him and along with him the offensive line where that that was, to me, in the three games that I've seen in this rivalry in, in, in person now, since uh, since being here in 2018. This was the starkest difference to me on the line of scrimmage, not just in performance and execution and whatnot, but in physical presence and size. To me, this showed the biggest disparity between Oregon's offensive line and Washington's front seven and vice versa. The Washington front and Oregon's front seven. To me, this was a showcase in Washington used to, was the team that was, you know, the traditional style, pound it when they want to, you know, in the, in the glory days per se of, of Peterson early on in particular, when they were having a lot of success, that's how they were built. 
and Oregon was still a little bit of the finesse thing with the end of Chip and the Helfrich years and etc. Now, this is so completely the pendulum has swung so far the other way to where, especially now that they're changing coordinators and who knows what happens in the future there with Jimmy Lake. This isn't a matter of just, uh, you know, I don't think Ducks fans are going to be crying any tears if Washington loses any recruiting battles to Harvard and Princeton. But, um, <laughs> hey, uh, to me, th- what stood out to me in rewatching the game even was just the the physicality on the line of scrimmage was so completely dominated by one side. Not saying that Washington never won a single rep. Hey, on the safety, they, had a fi- they did a fine job. <laughs> Backed up at the one foot line, but be that as it may, they did a fine job. But that was like the third, uh, I want to say it was like the fifth or sixth offensive snap or something like that for Oregon in the game. Ultimately, the physicality on the line of scrimmage, like I say, I thought, I thought Oregon as a whole, both ways, really dominated it. Got so much more push. And that showed uh, the differences between these programs right now that's been built over the last couple of years. It was already starting going that way. But in 18, it was that old line, and Panay is a true freshman, and he went down with the high ankle sprain in the game. And Washington still had, you know, Burke Hervin and, and other really productive uh, defensive, you know, front seven guys. And that offensive line still had an additional year. Then the following year, you had that old line. And again, still some talent in the Washington defense. Last year, obviously, they don't play. Here, a totally reset offensive line, which suffered two injuries in the game. Not just the one. You know, yes, we all know about Ryan Walk. It didn't necessarily get caught as much, but Stephen Jones went down in the fourth quarter. And they still imposed their will throughout the entirety of it. That, to me, just showed, again, and the Washington defense loses various, some of those players, not just in the secondary, but in the front seven over the last couple of years, and they have not been able to reload at all. And vice versa. Then you go to the other side. Who who did Oregon have on defense in 18 and 19 up beyond Troy Dye? I'm talking about front front seven guys. Not a lot of guys in the Oregon front seven in 18 and 19 outside of Troy Dye made it to the next level. And obviously now KT being a freshman in 19. Not a lot of those guys made it as NFL draft picks. Washington's O-line. Remember, that's the way they're built. They're tight ends. They're whatever. Blowing off the ball. Absolutely blown off the ball on Saturday. And that, to me, showed, again, to me, the biggest discrepancy between these teams and these programs right now is that one has one has a model and a vision. The other one is feeding off of before. And the remnants of before are dwindling in a hurry. And like I say, that's music to the ears of Ducks fans. <laughs> that's, they're, they're loving hearing that. But that's, to me, that that was the biggest takeaway to me both sides of the in the big picture of here's this rivalry and Oregon's dominated it and et cetera, and they haven't played in two years and all the rest. Yeah. And now they rematch and you see one team just crush the other on the line of scrimmage. It was that impressive. It just wasn't what it was. To the defense. I Aaron, agree. I agree. Uh again, I called the tremendous apparently you uh beyond beyond the fact that we both agree, yes, Washington's offense is is terrible. It is. And I, and again, they fired John Donovan so, you know, it just f- further underscores that point. But, yes, there was actually some very good play along the way. Your thoughts on the defense and some of the individual performances there? 
you know, clearly I don't disagree with what you're saying in terms of them playing really well. They played really well. It's just it's easier to play well against a team that's completely inept. I mean, Washington's offense is just inept. Like what? There's really they really don't even have anything to necessarily lean on, and they do extremely well. So you should dominate them. It doesn't mean Oregon didn't perform well. It's just that I'm just going to look at it and go, okay, well, yeah, you did exactly what you were supposed to do. You dominated a team that can't score. You know, Sewell play well, yeah, but we've seen him play well. I feel like I've seen all these players play well against better teams. So seeing them play well against this team, I give them credit for playing well against this team, but it doesn't make me want to, you know, stand on a mountaintop and scream about how great they were. You know, oh, they, sure. they were they were they were very good against a pitiful looking offense. How's the offense average five yards per pass attempt? How is that even possible for attempt, not just completion attempt? So that means your completion, your average per completion is what three? The whole thing is just it's embarrassing with what you does putting on the field offensively. Oregon took care of business, so. That's yeah, and keeping the top on the defense, which again, both defenses, both secondaries have done all season. And for Oregon to be able to do it again against a team that they actually had entering the game a pretty high percentage of explosive pass plays to Bynum and uh, to McMillan. But again, because it was raining buckets, they weren't getting the ball out to either one of them for deep throws. And... uh they had the one attempt, I want to say it was definitely second half. Um, I think Oregon was up at that point, 17-9, I believe, when uh, Adunaze had the shot for the over-the-shoulder catch where, I mean, if he makes it, it's what a, what a play and what it could be a potential momentum-shifting kind of play. It was either 10-9 or 17-9 at the time. And bottom line, like, no, it's very, very difficult play to be made. But they didn't take very many deep shots even. Uh, and one of them down the right sideline had no chance whatsoever. But again, Bynum had one catch for nine yards and was only targeted twice. Now, yeah, raining buckets and all the rest. Yeah, but Washington attempted 27 passes. Oregon only attempted 20. So point is, is they had more targets. They had more options. Otten, everybody was held in check. Everybody was held in check. The, you know, the, the longest pass of the night was 19 yards and it was the McGrew. So everybody was held in check in the passing game. You could say, yes, aided by weather in part, but... Frankly, but you, but you entering just, the game, you, the more explosive you, receiving core was Washington's. I know, but you gave Brown a little bit of a pass because of the weather, so that's why. That's another right. reason why it's like I'm not going to praise Oregon for stopping a passing game that was worse and absolutely in the weather. But point was is that they had some explosive options and they couldn't even find them. And yes, the weather played a factor in that, to be clear, but they couldn't find them. And then when they did try to find them, either it was wildly incomplete or forced into triple coverage or. You name it. Uh, so there were a couple things in the pass game. On the ground, 2.3 yards for carry. And this wasn't, oh, well, they got boosted by four or five sacks. No. 2.3 yards per carry. That's why I call it tremendous. That's why I say it's dominant along the line of scrimmage. This is Washington we're talking about. This is the two and three tight end. And look, in the touchdown, they, when they wired out there with true goal line, 32 personnel and scored. And KT nearly blew up that play single-handedly. But, yeah, they had marginal success with it. But they did those things at times, and even that didn't work. That's why I say defensively, like, hey, weather aside, terrible offensive coordinator aside, screen passes 
to the boundary out of 12 personnel aside and a coordinator who's no longer there now. Yeah. But the defense had to make some plays. Bassa has to come up with a big stop. Happel has to come up with some stops. Sewell does what he does. Tibbet, again, the, to me, it really was about on the line of scrimmage even more than the second or third level. Setting the edges and the interior clogging up lanes to where McGrew overwhelmingly, but yes, they, they Davis as well, but overwhelmingly McGrew, he had to either pause and wait or his lanes were getting clogged and he was just getting swallowed up at times. Yeah, and he, he evaded a couple of tackles. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he slipped a couple of guys. He, he slipped Verone McKinley a couple of times. I mean, Verone had him, and he, he broke free on a couple of them. Now, he, Verone brought him down a couple of times, too. They, they had their battles. But point was, is, yeah, McGrew had a couple of plays. But during the game, given the conditions, you figured both teams are going to run the football a whole lot. They did. One team found a whole ton of success, albeit against a defense who has been very bad against the run. The other team found zero success or next to zero success despite using the same tactics that the Oregon defense has struggled to handle for two months. And yes, after they get to pad their stats, here's one that I'm sure you frankly won't believe, Aaron. You know, Oregon's total defense numbers in Pac-12 play after this performance, they're second in the league in league play. In league play, to be clear. So you take the Ohio State statistical anomaly that was out of the equation. Total defense, Oregon is second in the Pac-12 in conference play. Now, yeah, it's padded in a big way, but you know what? Yeah, but everybody else gets to pad along the way, too, whether we're talking about with Arizona and Colorado, which Oregon obviously had as well, or Pac-12 North teams are going to play Washington. Yeah, well, they're getting it, and they got their stat padding in there to where they're now second in the league. And that to me, and it, and it went for the fact that the last month there has been some progress. This was the culmination of a lot of that progress. Now, they're not finished yet, obviously. <laughs> Wait, they're second <laughs> they're gonna, in what? They're second in total defense in league play. Oh, in league play. Okay. But that counts for something. Given, given that it wasn't exactly a, a terrific start to league play. The last yeah. now four games, they've... They've really begun to come together here. And like I say, and getting contributions from players like Bassa, Happel in particular, some of the interior defensive linemen, other than Brandon Dorless, who, yes, we but we talk about him a lot. There were guys who were making plays who don't even come up in the box score. That's why I say it was really a, a big performance in the defense. To, real quick, real quick. Yeah. Um, I just want to correct something I said earlier. Yeah. Pass yards attempt per game for – Pass yards per attempt for Washington is 6.8, not 5.2. 5.2 is what they allow. I got them. Still bad, but yes. just want to just want to correct that. I didn't want to make them out to be that bad. Anyway, moving along. To the some of the things in-game and then after the game. Uh, <laughs> in-game, there is the Jimmy Lake uh, incident with his fellow with his own player uh, following a return play. Uh, the tackles made near the Washington sideline and Jalen Red and I'm going to butcher the young man's name, so I'm not, I'm not even going to try and insult him with it. Bottom line, a uh, Washington walk-on linebacker. I'm not going to begin to try to mispronounce because it, it's uh, beyond that. Uh, they get they jar a little bit, and Washington had had a couple of 15-yard 
<coughs> 15-yard penalties on the preceding drive. So, having said that, Lake comes running down the sideline uh, to address it with his player, and he says, post-game, I didn't strike him, I separated him. Uh, your thoughts on this <laughs> sideline incident? I, I thought the worst part of the entire thing is the fact that he said he didn't hit the guy. They just was separating them. I mean, clearly he swung his arm and hit him in the top. It looked like to me the top of the helmet, right by the top of the face mask, right above. Excuse me, the forehead, right above the face mask. Yeah. So yeah. where the strike was. Um, and he had a he had a play card in his hand, but it seemed like you know the part of his hand hit hit the top of the helmet or whatever. But you know, a lot of people were up in arms about that, and I would argue that almost every coach in the history of football has hit a kid on top on the, on the helmet. If you've ever been hit with a helmet on, it's literally nothing. Like you don't, you do not feel it. It's just to get your attention. It's just the reason why they're hitting you on the helmet is because it's not going to hurt, but it's going to get your attention that you've been popped on the top of the helmet. So it looks bad. I don't think he should have done it. I wasn't as up in arms in it because I remember a coach grabbing my face mask once to get my attention because I blew a coverage or whatever. I didn't freak out and go cry to my mom about it. I've had a, a coach hit me on top of the head before and it's, you get your attention and you look at it, you don't. You don't feel like they're abusing you. So the optics of it just look bad, especially for people who don't understand the football world. You hit a kid on the head and he pushed him in the back. So it's going to look awful to people no matter what. But for him to say he didn't do it at the end was just ridiculous. Now, maybe he blacked out in a fit of rage because he flew over there. He bumped into an official, bumped into another uh, staff member on top of it. And he doesn't even remember swinging his arm. I don't know, but clearly he did. And if he did, but was trying to sell that he didn't, knowing that the game was on TV and there's also, oh, 35,000 camera phones in the stadium as well. Not that they're all trained on that, but you never know who's filming what. It was just ridiculous to me. Clearly, he swung and hit the kid. Clearly, he should have just owned up to it and say, you know, I apologize. I should have done that. It was out of character and I lost my cool. Then I think that would have lessened everything. But the fact that he tried to claim he didn't do it, to me, was worse than actually doing it. Yeah, I think the explanation after the game was pretty lame. Uh, to be honest, only in that, to your point, if you just say, look, in the, in the heat of the moment there, I got to I got to be better than that. Um, I know that he knows that, uh, you know, you, you, frankly, it's one of those things that you have to address. You, you know, you're going to address with the player either at halftime or after the game. Anyway, you need to be coming. You need to be able to come in the room and say that you did address it and just say, we already talked it out. Listen, we both understand it's a it's an emotional moment. I talked about poise during the week. You know what? I lost it there a little bit. I was frustrated mm-hmm. because my team was getting some penalties and uh, and addressing a moment with a player. I, I I took it a step too far there. Uh, so that's it. Now, having said that, in in person, I saw it through my binoculars. I didn't know it was Jimmy. I just I saw someone on the Washington sideline, but I can't see from where I was that it was Jimmy Lake who did it. I thought it might have been because of of what he was wearing. But not very easy to tell from where we are, uh, you know, up in the press box there and, and the vantage point, you know, from line of sight. It's, it's, you know, the biggest distance, some of the biggest distance in the building. Be that as it may, saw it. I wasn't sure exactly if there was contact up top. And then obviously when I saw the camera angle it was clear. What I thought actually took it the step further was the shoving after. Because... Based shoving, on even the shoving player in the reaction. Back when, when the yeah. yeah, because based on even how the player reacted, and, and my own, I, I watched how he walked down the rest of the sideline well after, forget about what the camera was doing. I, you know, I'm not even watching the next play. I was kept on watch because I didn't know who the player was. I mean, whatever. Um, 
his body language after the show, like he was, you know, more, it looked like he was more miffed in the immediate moment of it about that. To your point, like, I, I, I'm not going to speak for the player or anything else, but the player was more like he was like looking over his shoulder, like whatever about after the shove. Right. Now, again, like he's, I'm not saying he's mouthing off or anything like that, but he was more visibly. Now, of course. Probably because he, he pushed it in the back. Right. And yeah. that, and whatever was said was said, who the hell knows? But point is, is simply, I agree with you at this point. Look, let's not get hyperbolic. This was not Woody Hayes. This was not, you know, this, this, this well, is not. Here, here's what irritated me. Instead, instead of people saying Jimmy Lake, you know, shoved a player after hitting him on top of the head or on top of the helmet, top of the helmet. People were actually saying Jimmy Lake assaulted a player and punched him in the face. Like that's the kind of stuff that well, drives I mean, me. That's just what it gets just, completely again. You, I, you I know to, people are actually saying, yeah. that, "Oh, this is assault," and this like that. Well, mentality then there's just, rivalries, so there's things that are said by you don't know who's saying know, it. I'm just point, saying. You know, so that's that's where it gets away. My, the, my my thing is is especially <clears throat> given that it's a Pac-12 after dark game on on Saturday, and I haven't seen who the TV crew is uh, for this game for Oregon coming up. But you know, I, I'm just curious uh, my own self. What a very prominent uh, you know Stanford alum and uh, influential. Uh, Stanford Athletics broadcaster has to say on the matter. Because, you know, since he had so much to say about Mario's sideline. Uh, oh, he, oh, what's his face? You know, oh, I, I'm God. just, I, I would just love to hear what, what Mr. Gilmore has to say. Dude, people you know, were because, tweeting at him. People were tweeting at him that night saying, what do you have to say about this? I can imagine. I, 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 I don't know. The, I, truly, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I got oh enough going on during a game or whatever. You know, I have no idea what other, what fans are tweeting or any which other thing, unless they're tweeting to me. I have no earthly idea. But, you know, given that he had so much to say, um, and, and took it into the following week, uh, you know, I'm just, I, the silence right. is deafening, uh, in this situation. Uh, but be that as it may, and I, as a whole, something that I think can be moved on from. But in the world that we live in today, especially, and with their performance being bad, and with their offense now changing coordinators, I think this was let somebody else take the act so that you don't in the here and now. But if they crater, if they totally crater, if they finish like five and seven crater, lose to Washington State too, and things continue to look real bad, and their recruiting class continues to be ranked in the 50s at that point entering December, is it in the fifties? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're eighth they in the 20s. league. What did they finish last year? Last well, last year I think was somewhere in the mid twenties. I want to say. Okay, so maybe maybe I looked at that recently. But okay, yeah, this year, point is is yeah. If that if if Washington has a sub five hundred year, it doesn't make a bowl game, and things continue to look as poor as they do, people will look back at this as. Not just the game that cost Jimmy Lake, but an incident that cost Jimmy Lake. But obviously, so much this precedes that. If you want to really get big picture, this has to do with Donovan. This has to do with other uh, uh, assistant hires, recruiting, general tactics, and planning. So many other things. But be that as it may, that's for Washington. That's for Washington fans to worry about. Rivals Oregon, fan, Oregon fans are going to love hearing about all of Washington's issues. But point is, since it happened during the game, we, we mention it. But we're not here to debate over which thing with Jimmy Lake. Bottom line, he did what he did. If you want to say it's the most egregious act in the history of football, well, you know, that's for you. I do not. That's it. I'm not condoning it. I'm not there. I'm not saying he should have done it. But to me, I was 
I was even more seen through my binoculars, not knowing who it was who did it. I went, yeah. the shove seemed a little bit much. Uh, so <laughs> just just because, again, it was to the back. So anyway, yeah. point is, I'm sure it got clarified between player and coach since now. Here we are Monday morning talking about it. But point is, is it just becomes another thing, another issue right. in game and around a program where you're, you're, you're becoming your own worst enemy. Uh, so that doesn't help. After the game, first to the on the field, and uh, to, to be clear for folks, because Oregon uh, continues to not do in-game uh, or uh, post-game in-person interviews, even when you're allowed on the field, as we were on Saturday, I don't bother going down because what am I doing? I'm not going down to the post-game press conference in person. So it's cold, it's wet, it's rainy. I'm going to bring my computer down there to try and do work to do what? So I don't bother going down there because there's no And then come right back up to get on Zoom. To to go right back upstairs. Yeah, like what was the point? So in terms of, you know, Panthers point, the Seattle Times was down there, among others, uh, on the field for the exchange there. Again, the the griping back and forth, slipping back and forth between players. So so be it. I mean, whatever. That's hard... Some words here and there. What always amused me in those incidents, though, you tell me this, because you see it even sometimes in the professional realm, but in the professional realm, at least you've made the professional realm. Why is it that some of the biggest talkers throughout games, especially after games, are guys guys who didn't even play? Because they have all that energy built up. They're, all, they're frustrated. They wanted to play. They have all this, this energy built up in them. They weren't able to, to release it. And now after the game, they have all this time to talk trash. Whereas if you played and you're exhausted, you're going to be less likely to care that someone was talking trash because you're like, man, I just played 60 minutes. We whooped y'all's ass. That's what I'm what? saying. <laughs> like, you know, notice, notice the guys who were in the thick of it weren't the offensive line who imposed its will. Right. Weren't Thibodeau, weren't Dye, weren't Brown. Right. Weren't, no, no. It's uh, in many instances, it was guys who didn't even play in the game and just going yeah. like in both ways, to be clear. But yeah. it's like, what in the world? Yeah. So anywho, like it, that's where. All right. Again, whatever. Rivalries. Guys yell. Words are said. Fine. Add that to the list. Like as if we've never seen that before. You're listening to Ducks Confidential. We'll be back after a quick break. Uh, now, in terms of the post-game locker room celebration, which was uh, brought to you by Instagram Live, uh, by about 20 different members of the team. <laughs> so, the video made the rounds, uh, but yes, the Kayvon Thibodeau's broadcast of it captures the most attention because he has the most followers and he has the biggest name, but like I say, there were right. about 20-some-odd players. And this is a regular thing, to be clear for folks. It wasn't like they only did it for Washington or something. Like, I no, can't believe every they team to be done. Every team in America does it, though. Everybody does it. A coach got a coach has got to put a clamp down on that. Like when after I've released you, after I've said what I have to say, and we release you as a team, then you can put out your Instagram, do whatever you want. But while the coach is talking, every uh, a lot of them do it. A I, lot I of them do it. I understand. It I happens would, even in shut, NFL locker rooms. I would sometimes, shut that, sometimes, I would shut that down, man. Right? They don't. Hey, I'm with if you. I saw it, if I you. saw it, you'd be well, in the NFL. You. You'd be fine in college. You'd be running the stadium. I'm with you to the point to the point where <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Uh, this is how far I would take it if I were a coach. You want to say like how much how control freak? Hey, I'm not a control freak about a whole bunch, a whole mm-hmm. bunch. But if you put me in that position to talk, to talk about integrity of information and right. and uh, 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 
sanctity of the room. Yeah. I literally would take the uh, uh, cell phone locks that now you get at concerts and uh, uh, comedy shows. The, the magnetic uh, sleeves that you got to put mm-hmm. your phone in and stuff mm-hmm. so you can't record. I would have my team use those. And then after I'm done talking and I leave the room, have at it. Because there was far more than just even some, some you know, terse language from Cristobal post-game. So what? Yeah, again, it adds the rivalry for fans. It's great. I, I'm not going to be holier than thou about language. Give me a break. But there was far more when you want to talk about it, like integrity of locker room of information. Tim DeRuiter's exchange with, with some of the guys in the front seven. Which, again, nothing was, was terse by way of language, but you go about, like, how they played, his thoughts, whatever. I'm going, like, this is great. Like, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, but I'm like, if I if I were running the operation, I'd be like, guys, what are we doing? You know, <laughs> that's what we're be like, hey, yeah, but we're not. No, 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 no. So that's where, like I say, put me in that role. I'm, mm-mm. But, you know, for fans who want to see that kind of stuff, and then it makes the rounds, and you get, you know, the expletives along the way, and... Uh, I think what it, more than anything, I think what it showed and validated for everybody, in case you needed it, was after it after a week where Jimmy Lake stepped in it multiple times, purposely or otherwise, uh, and Washington players addressed some things, you know, to add to the the rivalry aspect of things, and Oregon very much did not, and Mario put on a clinic in discipline and avoidance of you know that uh, acknowledging certain things without you know furthering it you saw reality is that uh yes this is very much a rivalry <laughs> and that uh i can't believe that, he said washington's everything that's wrong with football what what did he mean by that the the cancellation of last year's game which came about because of COVID, uh, COVID right. protocols and an outbreak at Washington. But nobody's on either side. Again, I'm not speaking from Mario here, believe me. But the manner that, okay, it gets canceled and you miss an opportunity to compete on a field and it's a rivalry and whatnot. And both sides, obviously, are disappointed by it. Nobody wants it to happen and nobody wants it to be because of, of people getting COVID at the time. It was, I think it sent a lot of people very upset at Oregon that, not only that it happened, which, okay, hey, things do happen, but that the instant, the instant that the Oregon State-Stanford game kicked off, I mean, ball kicked, kicked off, which put the average number of league games just over the threshold, whereby Washington is the Pac-12 North champs in 2020 that Washington tweeted out Pac-12 North champs even before the league did. So? If you're Oregon and you're saying we didn't even get a chance to play you when in what would have been a division title game. You're three and two Oregon. What was what was Washington? Four and three and one. Three and one? Yeah. Half game lead. <laughs> Just kidding. That's the Listen, point. Is, is I'll be the first one to say they, the whole thing was dumb. That's why I mock you when you go back to back, back to right. champions. We're like whatever, like, dude. I said it. Like, I said the season had no integrity <laughs> last season, but that's a that was a conference wide matter. Again, the South right. Division didn't have integrity. Colorado and USC didn't play. Of course, USC would have beaten them, but 
Last year, all kinds of screwy things happened. So bottom line, you know, the, the season had no integrity. Neither team, neither division was decided on the field. And then obviously a conference title game with the team who finishes second by way of standings uh, and the like. But be that as it may, the manner in which things went down where, all right, a game gets canceled and then they're, they're declaring themselves the champs. There's one thing yeah, to acknowledge. There's one thing to acknowledge a let the league say whatever and then come out and say, well, we've been declared the, the division champs. Obviously, we quote unquote by rule, but you know, is this really something to celebrate? Washington was in such a race to celebrate its division championship last year. I think that's what uh, made some people, lots of people, uh, yeah, it in was the building and outside it was embarrassing. The they were three upset one, about it, and they were could they couldn't play against Oregon by no fault of their own. Although you could say, well, why well, guys yeah, we're not going to COVID, again, yeah. but to then say, oh, we're we're North champions, even though we couldn't show up for the North championship game, is ridiculous. Yes. 100%. And again, the fact that it was but, done within, I'm not even, it's not hyperbole, seconds of right. the ball being kicked off. They literally beat the conference to the tweet. They were sitting there with their finger on the button on that game. That was what upset lots of people, upset fans, upset people in the building across the board. I mean, again, I'm not speaking for Chris Paul, I'm speaking just knowing how lots of people feel that. Yes, and again, hearing it from fans and every which other thing. So that added to it. So that's where I mean, saying like for for Crystal Ball in particular, it comes across as in a matter of, of any one exchange or conversation or post game or press conference or whatever. Everything is about what what do you say even in this post game? You don't get to declare your way to anything. You have to earn what you get. That's his mo that's yeah, like but, that is his pillar the, of philosophy but the pac-12 did declare right but point is is it's one thing if the league says so but a program just goes like all right you know we we acknowledge whatever because then they obviously had to back end up missing the title game anyway it's another it's another thing to be so eager to to <laughs> to validate that position yourselves that you beat your own league to doing so. Yeah. I mean, it's cheesy, was, but I, w- yeah. I wouldn't let that bother me. But at the same time, you know. Well, in a rivalry, you're going to let those things get. You know. I, I know, but at the same time, Oregon got to go to the championship yes. game, even though. And pick up a second trophy two, that you don't recognize. Played yes. USC in a championship game that, you know, it didn't have yes. to go through Washington to get there. And it's running around calling itself Pac-12 champions, not acknowledging the fact that the whole thing was just ridiculous. So yeah. both sides did the exact same thing, just in different time frames. Well, yeah, but unless one, you want well, to say, but when side, you win the championship game, it was declared right at the time you won the game. I understand right. that, but at the end of the day, both teams were celebrating completely made up things. Well, if you want to get really philosophical, isn't it all made up? But be that as it may, to to the big, let's not get that deep. Yeah, to the to the big picture. <clears throat> okay, and what it means for the playoff, and not just this game, but really the, the weekend it was, because obviously it goes far beyond just Oregon beating Washington. What it means for the playoff, again. Since we know we're going to end up doing this each week, as long as Oregon keeps winning, we're not going to get exhausted here. Uh, your thoughts on what we'll see Tuesday night and what people will be yelling about this week about playoff rankings and where Oregon is? Uh, man, that's tough. I, uh, I mean, does Michigan, does Michigan State fall out and Cincinnati goes in just as a placeholder until the Big Ten's figured out? Because still, 
Michigan State, Ohio State, one of those two teams can still win the conference. <clears throat> Actually, in, heck, uh, Michigan could still win the conference with just one loss. So maybe you put Cincinnati in the top four with what you had before. This Oregon, week? Georgia. Huh? This week you put Cincinnati in the top four? As a placeholder until the Big Ten figures things out. Because mm-hmm. you know the Big Ten is going to sort itself out. Because Michigan right. and Ohio State have to – Michigan and Ohio State play. Ohio State plays Michigan State. Um, just let that mess sort out. If a, if a one-loss team emerges as a champion, that, that team's going to get in. But for right now, hey, Cincinnati's undefeated and every team in that in the Big Ten is flawed, clearly. And that was a bad loss. Well, not a horrible loss from Michigan State, but it's still coming off of beating Michigan. It looked bad. So just put Cincinnati in there for now. Or, I guess, Oklahoma. Oklahoma's undefeated in the bigger conference, so maybe Oklahoma. Um, and then just uh, let it sort out from there the rest of the week. It's not too worried, worried too much about it. For the week, I think I think we see Oregon and Ohio State yeah. each move up a peg. I think Michigan State only drops to five, stays ahead of Cincinnati uh, because of their math. I think Purdue may sneak in into the top 25 by the committee. Uh, I think they could slip in somewhere between 21 and 25. I would think 23 to 25 because they have a couple of losses. Uh, for the weekend, in terms of what matters to Oregon, specifically beyond, obviously, yes, winning. The most significant aspects of the weekend for Oregon were Fresno State losing to Boise State and Minnesota losing its game. Why? Fresno State got hammered, too. Because those games were further data points that gave both Oregon and Ohio State top 25 wins. Both of those teams were 20 to 25. Minnesota was 20. Fresno State was 23. They both lose. They're both going to drop out of the top 25. That's why <clears throat> when I say the the impact of the weekend is going to be that those data points hurt. Now, that said, who below them is going to necessarily get a big jolt? Well, not very many uh, at all. So that the, on one hand, the weekend went against them in a lot of ways. On the other hand, yeah, but basically nobody really benefited. So Michigan State's loss is going to, not, is going to drop them from three. But again, I think Michigan State only drops a few spots because one, Michigan's still way up there, uh, and the, and the quality of that one is still there, and two, because Cincinnati's you know metrics are still not good, and and they struggled against Tulsa, and Oklahoma, you mentioned, <clears throat> yes, still undefeated, and Wake Forest losing knocks out a team in the top ten, so someone's going to have to move up there. I'm not sure who. I haven't looked at it. I don't care. But point is, is Oklahoma didn't play their strength of record today or strength of schedule to date by way of a, a opponent win percentage, actually dropped relative to a week ago. So they, now, again, their final three games is among the toughest schedules in, the, in America. They have the, they're tied for third by way of win percentage of toughest remaining schedules. But they haven't played anyone to date. So there's a big disconnect between the human polls and the committee because the human polls aren't taking into account that Oklahoma hasn't played anybody. They're just going Oklahoma 9-0 and and not <laughs> actually looking into the numbers. So the committee looks at more data points. That's what I say. So on those data points, Oregon and Ohio State both lose games that were, to their credit, they're going to slide. Now, having said that, can Fresno State potentially still get back up there because a loss to Boise State may not be the worst thing? Yeah, probably. Can Minnesota work its way back up? Probably not because losing to Illinois ain't going to help. That's that's, mm -mm. – Wait, who would you say? Minnesota was a a solid win for Ohio State. But I don't know if they can actually manage to find their way back up. Right. Because, again, they're the, lo- losing to the caliber of team that they just did. 
I'm not sure that that's going to help them very much. So that that's why I say, I think that but in I, the I long think, run, uh, that's not. Uh, go ahead. I think that in the long run, Oregon could still get a quality win over Fresno State to its credit, as long as Fresno State can actually win out and do something. If they lose another game, forget it. That's off the table. So now it just becomes about Utah, basically. Uh, and frankly, by because the Pac-12 cannot have nice things, uh, and that this league is so mediocre as a league. The outcomes this weekend in the league were about as bad as they could get for Oregon. To where now, now, with Oregon State losing, the Colorado, you actually have a case, if you're a Ducks fan this week, where you want Stanford to beat Oregon State. Because now that Cal lost to the City of Berkeley Public Health Department and Arizona, now that that happens, well, the only way, basically now you have to resign yourself to the fact that Cal's probably not going to get the 500. So now your best chance would be if Stanford can get the 500, which requires beating Notre Dame, which good luck with that, but who knows by then. So now it's, if Stanford actually beat Oregon State and were to cobble together a few wins here down the stretch, they could at least get the six wins. Cal has a harder path for that down the stretch. They just do. They got to play Stanford and UCLA, and I forget who they have this week, but be as it may. So the point is, is, of the Bay Area teams, now you actually want Stanford to try and be the team to get the six, especially because it's the loss, number one. Two, <clears throat> that Oregon State losing to Colorado, that that's going to get dragged down to the point where, like, there's a, there's no argument that Oregon State's going to suddenly rise into the top 25 by the end of the season. Ain't happening. So unless they unless just, they went out including being well right if they were to upset yeah. Oregon or something but <laughs> that, but the point is is but for Oregon's purposes it doesn't serve right. as a it data doesn't... point of value for the playoff if they're going to get in so if that shot it's shot it's now about Utah doing as much damage as possible uh, and and, and the there. Arizona State yeah. I mean I think I still think you'd rather beat Utah and then play Arizona State than beat Utah beat Utah no yeah. I'm, again, you want Arizona State to to try and have some success because at least even if they don't end up playing them in the in the title game, the rest of the South Division at least benefits from playing a better Arizona State team. But that's what I'm saying. It's the optics of the last weekend. But as a whole, yeah, not um, again. The league is so mediocre. If you look at the league standings, it's unbelievable. I mean, the, you know, mathematically, it's it's pretty unbelievable. Again, Arizona and Colorado just both won on the same weekend. Think about that for a minute. Arizona and Colorado just won on the same weekend. These are two I'm, of not just the two worst teams. Twelve, man, it's psycho. Uh, it's psycho, and it's awesome. Bad, bad, it's bad, awesome. Bad, bad outcomes. <laughs> nice for Jed Fish and Carl Durrell. Terrible for the Ducks in the league. But be that as it may, to this week and, and the matchup with Wazoo, uh, your just uh, general impressions going into this matchup with Washington State. Uh, again, a Pac-12 after dark home game for the Ducks. And a Washington State team is coming off a bye where this is the only opponent that Oregon's going to play that is coming off a bye where Oregon isn't also coming off a bye. They both had it with uh, uh, when Oregon played Cal on the Friday night. But here, this is the only opponent that Oregon's going to play that has the benefit of a bye where Oregon didn't. This is true. Uh, my take on this is that this is a game that Oregon should win. But because Washington State has a good passing game and they've been playing better since lately than most people thought they were going to play after their coach got let go, 
And it's at night, right? 7.30. Ooh, 7.30 p.m. Man, this is not very scientific, but uh, I think Oregon could lose but won't lose. <laughs> I think it's going to be close. I do think it'll be close. I think I, My initial thought is that it could be closer than the two-touchdown point spread that was initially set. And I think that's because, one, Wazoo's coming off a bye and Oregon's coming off of what was a very physical game and a rivalry game. Two, because look at Wazoo's defense by way of personnel. I'm not getting into every which stat and every which other thing. That I got the full week to do that. I'm about, I think it's 14 of their top 15 tacklers are juniors or seniors. This is a veteran team. I'm not telling you they're a great team. I'm not telling you they're a phenomenal team. I'm not telling you they got all these All-Americans or something. No, no, no. Don't misunderstand me. But UCLA wasn't a team loaded with all kinds of talent and every which other thing either. Oregon still had to play a veteran defense and put up a good performance against a team like that. And UCLA's defense has struggled the last several weeks since that game. All right, well, here's a Wazoo defense that Ron Stone has 10.5 tackles for loss. And he's at or near the top in the league in that category. Uh, Jihad Woods has been around for forever. Rodgers has been around for forever. They have guys on that defense <laughs> who played a lot of football yeah. games. And offensively, you know that Delore is a, a you know elusive quarterback and that they have two running backs, but Borgie's playing well. And they always have a pretty good you know complement of receivers. But Harris and Jackson are pretty good at the receiver spot. And the individual matchup of Abe Lucas and Kayvon Thibodeau is going to, I think, draw quite a bit of uh, attention from the NFL world. So I think there's a lot of individual matchups in this game that are going to be pretty compelling. I really do. And I think it's going to be a competitive game. And yet, and yes, that it's at night and every which other thing. But no, I do. Obviously, Wazoo's had its challenges this season. And uh, frankly, the fact that they're a winning team and in position to make a bowl game, not just because, you know, not projecting about what happens on this Saturday, but I would project right now that they're supposed to be Washington in the Apple Cup for the first time in a minute. Uh, well, credit to credit to the remaining staff and to the players there for being able to hold things together as they have so far. They cut, they get the benefit of a bye week to try and actually figure some things out with a uh, ad hoc offensive staff that got brought in. I'm, you know, again, I'm not going to begin to project as to what they're going to do offensively. I don't have a clue. I'm not sure anybody necessarily does. I don't think they're reinventing the wheel. They're still running the run and shoot, but you know, the the whole offense, <laughs> the whole all the personnel involved by way of coaching staff changed uh, on the offensive yeah. side, basically. So that's a well, different clearly, situation. They they've always been good about the quick the quick passing game, which you know if you if you're worried about protecting the quarterback Delora against. Oregon's pass rush, especially Kayvon, but you're getting rid of the ball quickly and you're doing it with precision timing and getting a lot of run after the catch, then you're going to be a threat. And that's the one thing where I would say that they're going to have an opportunity to do against Oregon. But then you go look at the pass for, for, for Washington State and you look at the BYU game. BYU was a good team, obviously, but you know they Washington State could not generate much offense in that game. I mean, they completed passes, but they weren't picking up big chunks of yards. The Lord only threw one touchdown or no touchdowns. They only scored 19 points. But prior to that, they were far more successful, but against far weaker teams than what they're going to play in Oregon. So I think the quick passing game will keep them in it and keep them functional and probably frustrate Oregon and probably lead to some points, but not enough to overcome what I think is going to be a pretty good offensive day for Oregon. So I think Oregon wins. It's just going to be 
interesting. Like, is it going to be one of those things where it's like, why isn't this game over in the third quarter? Well, because Washington State's playing well enough to stay in it, and Oregon is not dominant. But then eventually Oregon will wear them down. Die will destroy in the second half. Brown will make some plays. And I do think they come close to covering, but it's going to be a very interesting football game along the way. I actually agree there. I think I, I think that there's a chance that in the second half that this is a game that kind of fluctuates between it's a two-score game, it's a one-score game. Right. Up, there's a stop. They have the ball. Up, three and out, two-score game. Up, back down, right. a one-score game. It, it's just kind of a seesaw sort of, sort of deal. But, or, but Oregon's in control, kind of. Yes. They're in control, yes. but it's close. Yeah. Yes. But I think, I again, I look, last year, obviously, they won the game in Pullman. They won it handily, uh, for again, for whatever last year was worth. But – a lot of players are different from last year. A lot of players are different from last year. You know, Nick Pickett led the Oregon defense in tackle. He ain't there. Obviously, Riddell's <laughs> hurt and got hurt in the game. Uh, obviously, this has been the quarterback change. It's been, you know, and again, both sides have, have some differences. So, right. point is, is um, I'm not going entirely off last year. Obviously, two years ago was a, a wild finish, but a whole lot has changed since then by way of personnel, coaches, and everything else. So, I do think it'll be competitive, but I agree with you. I think it could be a little bit back and forth uh, and even a little bit high scoring, uh, to be honest, both both ways with it. Um, but again, we'll see. We'll see if the Oregon defense can keep its positive trend going. And we'll see if uh, the Ducks can stay alive in the playoff conversation for another week and then set up for a Utah game the following week that that could be extremely meaningful Ooh, and, uh, and actually, actually might actually draw, you know, some, you know, Legitimate, legitimate television interest, and uh, who knows? Maybe game day comes out to Salt Lake City or something. And that there's a chance. There's a chance. Is that the best game on the schedule in top twenty-five? It actually that that following week you have a case. And now the best game is Ohio State, Michigan State. To be clear, oh they play that week. Okay. But but game day's already gone to Columbus. Mm. I think so. You know, so there's there's obviously some yeah. very good. Stories to be told at Utah on the season, obviously in tragic uh, nature, but they they have a a the fact that they've been able to hold it together as a team and a, and a program also has been incredible credit to to Kyle Whittingham and his staff and those players. So right. yeah, we'll talk more about that game next week. But uh, yes, for this matchup with Wazoo, I think it'll be quite competitive uh, and back and forth. So. Appreciate you folks for listening. As always, this has been the Ducks Confidential Podcast. For those of you who subscribe, thank you already. Make sure to give us a five-star review and like and rating and all those fine things. For those of you who don't, what are you doing? I've been telling you to do this for two months already. we got a big playoff push going on here. You've know, you got to be able to tune in and get it. So make sure to subscribe to the Ducks Confidential Podcast wherever you get your podcast and give us that review and like and all those things so that way more people can find it. Because, yes... Uh, you might imagine a lot of people even outside of Oregon beginning to pay a lot more attention to the Ducks here uh, in the month of November as they are ranked where they are in the life. So I'm James Kreppi. He's Aaron Fentress. We will see you next week.